Hello, Forever Dog listeners. This is Oliver Vaquer. And before we get to your regularly scheduled podcast, I want to tell you about a podcast I wrote called The Angel of Vine that is available now on the Forever Dog Podcast Network. The Angel of Vine is a scripted series about a present-day journalist who uncovers the audio tapes of a 1950s private investigator who cracked the greatest cold case Hollywood has ever known and didn't tell a soul. It combines classic Hollywood noir with contemporary true crime podcasting. It stars Joe Manganiello, Alfred Molina, Constance Zimmer, Alan Tudyk, Camilla Luddington, Mike Coulter, Misha Collins, Kari Payton, and me. The Angel of Vine is like Serial meets The Black Dahlia, or Making a Murderer meets L.A. Confidential. And once you start listening, I think you're really going to like it. So subscribe to The Angel of Vine now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and start listening. We'll have new episodes every Wednesday between now and the thrilling series finale on January 16th. And if you want even more of The Angel of Vine, you can get exclusive access to advanced episodes, ad-free episodes, and bonus episodes on Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com angel and using promo code angel. Last but not least, stay tuned at the end of this episode for an exclusive clip from The Angel of Vine. Now on with your regularly scheduled podcast. Forever! They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! This podcast episode is recorded live at Austin Film Festival. See? Tonight's episode is presented by ScreenCraft, a screenwriting talent discovery company. Give them a round of applause, please. Tonight's topic is horror screenwriting, and I would like to uh, congratulate on behalf of ScreenCraft, the grand prize winner and runner-up of the 2018 ScreenCraft Horror Screenplay Competition. It's called Burner. It's by Mukalan Thangamani, and has been selected as the grand prize winner of the 2018 ScreenCraft Horror Competition. Please give a round of applause for that winner. And for the runner-up, Wolves Don't Cry by Scott Fleischman. Give him a round of applause. ScreenCraft receives thousands of screenplays each year and specializes in competitions which tailor the jury and prize to each genre. Tonight's panel includes three previous ScreenCraft judges, including C. Robert Cargill, Scott Beck, and Brian Woods. Learn more at ScreenCraft.org. Now please give a warm welcome to all of our panelists. Thank you all so much for being here. We have a lot to talk about. Um, I want to make sure that everyone who is listening to this podcast, as well as the people in the room, know what your voices sound like and know where they have seen your names on their television or film screens. Starting with you, please tell us your name and uh, give us your genre cred. Why are you on this panel? Uh, my name is C. Robert Cargill. Uh, I'm a former film critic. I'm a novelist. I'm a screenwriter. You probably know me best from uh, my work on Marvel's Doctor Strange, uh, as well as the film Sinister and Sinister 2. Uh, I'm also... And, thank you. 
Also, in Arthur, I was shortlisted this year for the Arthur C. Clarke Award for uh, literature, uh, okay. science fiction literature, for my book Sea of Rust. And I have a new book out that is entirely uh, ten ho- short horror stories. Cool. Al. Okay, my, my name is Alvaro uh, Rodriguez. Al Rodriguez. Uh, you might know me from a movie that I wrote with my cousin Robert called Machete. And I also was a writer on From Dust Till Dawn, the series, and 20 years ago wrote From Dust Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter, which was a spaghetti western prequel to that. And uh, I, I have a new uh, horror-related supernatural uh, kung fu adult animated series <laughs> called Seis Manos, which will be on Netflix next fall. That, that tired, tired premise. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Yasmin Yilmaz, Yas for short. Uh, I worked on The Exorcist Season 2 and an upcoming Netflix series called Protector. Um, That's me. These are good answers. Fantastic. Hi, I'm Scott Beck, uh, co-writer with... Brian Woods. Uh, Together we uh, co-wrote A Quiet Place. Um, We also... Thank you. We also just finished post-production on a film we wrote and directed, um, produced by Eli Roth, called Haunt, which hopefully will be out next Halloween. And uh, we're writing The Boogeyman, a Stephen King adaptation for Fox and 21 Laps right now. Right. I, I want to start by asking uh, each of you about the horror in your background, the fictional horror in your background. Um, what was your gateway? What was the stuff that you got into that got you interested in this genre? And I'll start at that end with you, Brian. Um, oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I remember, what year did Alien 3 come out? Uh, 92. 92. Wait, look at your T-shirt. <laughs> well, Gremlins is a, is a place to start, but I mean, I, I feel, um, you know, seeing Alien, Alien 3 came out when I was a kid, and there were all these action figures, and I was buying up these action figures without having seen the movies, and then my mom, uh, because she was amazing, rented Alien 1, Aliens, and just to see those movies at that age, like, you, you fall in love with horror immediately. It was just, it was so wonderful. Um, my gateway was my uncle Dwayne when I was like five or six years old he would show me only the worst parts of the scariest horror films (laughs) so for instance I saw um, Cronenberg's The Fly but only the part where Jeff Goldblum spits on John Getz's ankle and it starts melting away or the scene in Robocop where the guy gets covered in acid and gets hit or most famously like the chestburster scene in Alien and that stuck with me and only when I was like old they're like seven years old. Did I see the full context of those movies? So. At the proper age, yes. absolutely. Uh, well, I happen to, I, I grew up in Turkey, so we had badly dubbed uh, horror films from America on <laughs> the TV at like past midnight. So I happened to sneak down one evening when I was seven to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> I actually ended up going off horror for a while after that. It, sure. For a few years, gave me enough nightmares that I was like, no, thank you. Um, And then I got back into it with books. Um, Read a lot of um, Stephen King. And then Alien for me, too. Actually, Alien did it. What was your Stephen King gateway? And how old were you when you read that first one? Firestarter, and Mm -hmm. I was 11. That seems right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Al? Um, I was also, maybe my, I think my gateway was probably literary other than 
instead of the movies, but it was also a Stephen King kid. I was also just a voracious reader from an early age, and so I loved like Edgar Allan Poe stuff. And, and but Stephen King, the uh, Night Shift, the collection of short stories, mm -hmm. was my first entry into that. But I also remember very vividly uh, when I was a kid this thing called Boo Theater that was on TV, and you know it, it would it would show like Hammer films on a Saturday <laughs> and stuff like that. So that really captured my imagination, and I can't tell you how much of a uh, thrill I had getting Roger Corman to sign one of my a poster that I had of the Tomb of Lygia which film that he made back in the 60s from Edgar Allan Poe's story Robert Town wrote the script and I now have a signed poster from Roger That's Corman uh, yeah, so um, I, uh, my family uh, is, a, I'm a military brat uh, to start off with, and so living on an Air Force base, my parents felt very, uh, uh, very comfortable with letting me just kind of go around, and, and what my mother would do when I was five years old is drop me off at the movie theater during the matinee on Saturday while she went and did the shopping uh, to keep me out of her hair. And so I, you know, uh, I just grew up watching movies constantly. My parents had a, a Saturday night family night, and we would pick out a movie at the VHS, and one of us every week would pick a different movie, and um, uh, and we would make homemade pizza, and we'd do that. But where I, it really, like, so I watched a bunch of horror growing up, but what really bit me was uh, uh, when I was eight years old, I had the biggest crush on Drew Barrymore, and uh, it was just huge, and, and my aunt, who was only five years older than me, knew about this, and um, so for Christmas, she bought me this book because I had wanted to go see this new movie that was coming out with Drew Barrymore, and my parents are like, we're not taking you to see a Stephen King movie. Uh, you are not seeing this movie. So she bought me the book cover, the adaptation, or, well, not the adaptation, the original, but that had the, you know, Drew Barrymore on the cover. And my parents flipped, and they're like, you're giving our eight-year-old son a Stephen King novel. And she's like, he's not going to read it. He's going to look at the picture. I read that fucking thing eight times. The third time through, I was like, wait, this Stephen King guy, he makes his living doing this. I would like to do this. This is cool. And so from then on, I had the horror bug. And really what really, really dug into me was when I went to middle school and I befriended this guy, Alex Miller, who um, was just heavily into comic books and horror movies. And he's like, what do you mean you aren't reading comic books? And started putting Marvel comic books into my hand and started saying, hey, you, you've never seen the Friday the 13th movies? Well, come over and stay over on Friday night and we'll watch all four. And from that, my parents had no idea I was leaving the house and watching all all these rated R movies I was never allowed to watch. <laughs> and so by the time I was 13, I was deep in it. And I had read everything Stephen King had put out, and I had seen everything, and I've been addicted ever since. Um, I'm, I'd like to get real deep real fast. Uh, some of the stuff that we talked about, or that you guys mentioned, um, Stephen King novels and sort of the, the heyday of Friday the 13th and, and that sort of movie, um, I think we're seeing a lot of horror now that harkens back to that in a sort of nostalgic way. Uh, and my question is, none of you have made that kind of movie or TV show. I think what all of you are doing is the kind of horror that pushes the genre forward. Uh, and what I'm curious to hear about is, how do we push the genre forward? What, what were you thinking about in terms of genre when you were writing Sinister, when you're writing A Quiet Place, when you're tackling you know, these sorts of stories that you felt compelled to tell? Because again, the other thing, the other side of this is sort of, these are all your breakthrough uh, uh, projects and they do have the feeling of stories that you were passionate about. 
I think one of the huge keys always is finding something that instinctually is going to terrify you. So, for instance, when we were writing Quiet Place, um, it was very much uh, tapping into what you don't see is always more horrifying than what you do see right in front of your face. And I think, um, you know, when I was watching Blair Witch, for instance, one of the scenes that sticks with me time and time again is when they're in the tent and you're hearing those horrifying screams, those noises that are so cryptic. And that just taps into like this, this, this fear that is buried deep inside what you're conjuring is in your head mm-hmm. is always going to be, you know, paramount. And it, and it speaks to the power of how we, we always felt the power of sound in cinema and in, in horror cinema in particular, um, sound does conjure up things in your imagination. Exactly what Scott's saying, what, what you don't see is, is, is far scarier. And so for A Quiet Place in specific, we were trying to think of um, a way to, to make sound itself the monster in the movie. Um, and, and the hope is that it would be something slightly different than what we'd seen before. What was stuff that, and, and I'll jump back in a second, but what was stuff that you looked at or that made an impression on you where you did think, you did start get to thinking that sound could be so effective in horror? Um, well, I mean, in terms of like other movies, like uh, there's obvious examples like Jaws, uh, you know, not seeing the shark and hearing the music and hearing the sound. You know, there's many, many examples of the power of sound in cinema. But the weird thing about A Quiet Place is it was the non-horror inspirations that really fueled us, like Charlie Chaplin films and Buster Keaton and silent movies and, and um, our, our kind of instinct to take the silent film format and marry it to something like Alien or marry it to something like Jaws. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, well, I mean, uh, the thing that really stuck with me was uh, the fact that the key to a great horror film is something... Uh, that we're all scared of innately, like, and that we're not going after it necessarily literally, but culturally in a way. Like one of the things I love about The Quiet Place is the fact that what, you know, uh, the real fear that drives that movie is the fact that the the fear that you're going to be too loud. Like, can I be quiet enough to stay alive? Uh, When we wrote Sinister, I mean, the chief fear was uh, the kids aren't all right. You know, where uh, every person who's a parent is afraid that something their kids watch is going to pervert them. Something they read, they read is going to change them. And this is the idea of this demonic essence, this 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 deity that shows the kids these terrible things, and it does in fact change the kids. Uh, it does get under their skin, and the kids end up becoming murderers as a result. And so that fear kind of comes out of that primal place. And then, of course, you just deal with the fact that you know, great horror comes from the fact that if you create interesting enough characters will care if they stub their toe. So if you put them in real mortal danger, the audience is going to be gripped. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to start from some primal place, something that we're all afraid of. I mean, that's that's what we talked about while writing Sinister, was that's the core of The Exorcist. Is Why is The Exorcist so scary? Because we get to spend time with Reagan and her mother at the beginning, and then Reagan isn't alright, and we want Reagan to be alright, and so we're scared for her, and we get terrified. And then you get these truly terrifying terrifying things that just you know uh, these images and these these things that happen that just kind of get under your skin and won't let go uh, like I had a similar experience uh, to you uh, uh, on Nightmare on Elm Street where uh, I, the first time I saw Nightmare on Elm Street I had nightmares for two weeks like Johnny Depp getting grabbed in the bed I did not want to sleep in my bed and my parents were like get in bed it's like no I, the, the minute I go to sleep he can get me you know that's what works about Nightmare on Elm Street is how do you stay awake we can't it's physically impossible to stay awake long enough for Freddy to not get us. That's what's scary about it. We can't escape. And that's, um, 
Uh, and that's the thing. But one of the other things we did with Sinister, which in fact ties into A Quiet Place, I was fascinated watching that, was when we made Sinister, uh, the studios all balked at it. And in fact, uh, one studio had the board voted on whether to pick it up or not, and they split down the middle, so they decided not to, uh, because they said, can the killers be something other than the kids? People don't like seeing kids get killed. Correct. People don't like seeing, um, people don't like seeing violence against families. And here we are six years later after Sinister came out, and I watched a movie in which a kid gets killed in the first 10 minutes, and the audience goes, that's fucked up, what happens next? And <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to watch that evolve and watch how studios were afraid of that for so sure. long. With the question you initially asked, you know, the nostalgia thing, you know, 80s horror wasn't afraid to put kids in danger, mm-hmm. and now we're, afra- we're willing to put kids in danger again, and so we've got a whole new source of horror that we're scared of, and it's working. And, and I think that's why part of the reason people go back. The, the danger now seems so much truer. It feels so much realer and more honest, and I think... Um to what do you all attribute that? I mean, I want to talk about The Exorcist uh, TV show uh, because it was brought up. Um, you know, this was the second season, for those of you who haven't seen it, is about a, a, a foster parent, and he has, what, five kids or something like that? Um, and it's a sort of... The game that the show plays a little bit is which one is possessed for a little while. Um, and then, boy, is there a twist. Have you guys watched The Exorcist TV show? It's great. It's sincerely great. Both seasons. Um, but yes, I'm curious to hear about the conversations that took place in the room about like what can we get away with and how do we tell a story like this, not in 90 minutes, but over 10 hours. Sure. I'm not going to give any spoilers because if any of you want to check it out, it That's is right. on Hulu. So <laughs> go do it. Um, it's, uh, so over the course of 10 hours... In a movie, you have two hours to you know grab an audience terrify them and let them go. But when you're talking about network TV, you have an hour each week with commercial breaks. So it's very important that not only do you have them on the edge of their seats because of the horror, but you need to have them connect to the characters. So um, when I came in, the, the, the first few weeks, we really focused on talking about all of the kids, all of the the whole family. And... Um, our priest characters, Tomas and Marcus. So for us, it was, let's get to know these characters. Let's get to know the point of view that they're bringing into the story because only then will we be able to, you know, find those scenes where, um, where, you know, the one kid who might be afraid of going into the woods is going to have to face that and um, face, you know, the, the scary moments in there. So um, once we established the storyline for the entire season, it was a lot richer to kind of find the find those moments that not only scare those kids, but scare the audience as they're watching and being very worried for them. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Alvaro, you've worked in both film and TV. What's gained by doing television, by un- unrolling a horror story over 10, 12 episodes? Well, I mean, I can give the example of Dustal Dawn, which in the first season, it was basically, let's take the movie and try to turn it into a season of television, which you can say is successful or not successful, but we tried to do it. The second, before, even before the end of the first season, we'd already exhausted everything that was in the movie, so that was very liberating, because now we could take the story further. And because I had done Hangman's Daughter so long ago, I was really interested in, you know, telling stories about this kind of monster, this kind of uh, scary thing that we hadn't really seen before. Telling, reaching deep into Mesoamerican mythology and finding ways of, of, uh, you know, 
giving us a vampire that we hadn't really seen and creating a, a whole sort of universe that was uh, rooted in, in real mythology, if that's a word, you know, uh, in a real cultural thing mm -hmm. and showing us stuff that we hadn't, really hadn't seen before. And that was the joy of uh, working on that show was that we could, uh, we could tap into things. Now, the weird thing about it is that because the nature of the first movie was sort of like this mashup, it's a, it's a guys on the, you know, bank robbers on the run story that suddenly becomes a madcap vampire thing, spoiler alert and dust till dawn. <laughs> but, you know, so in a way, the challenge was trying to, we were never going to be sinister. We were never going to be the exorcist, right? So it's like, that's off the table. But the idea would be that we're giving you something you haven't really seen before, mm -hmm. and we're finding new ways of uh, telling those kinds of stories, maybe even humanizing the monster a little bit, but also smuggling a lot of shit. I'm big <laughs> on smuggling, and I feel like that, those were, there were so many opportunities for smuggling on that in that project. In in what way? Can you talk about that? Well, like I said, part of it to me was, especially in From Dust Till Dawn three that I wrote so long ago, was that that was to me less a horror movie about scary vampires than it was a movie about how all of these characters are liars and they're not what they seem to be. And that that's, our terror is sort of like um, with discovering the truth about each other because that shares, it shows us something about ourselves mm -hmm. in some weird way. And so um, in the Dustal Dawn Hangman's Daughter, there's this, this bandit that is about to be hung, uh, hanged uh, in the town square and he's rescued by a, uh, someone who shoots the rope. That someone is later to re revealed to be a girl who is dressed as a boy who wants to learn how to be a gunslinger, and is later revealed that she killed her entire family, and the stuff like that. And so there's like all these elements of disguise, all these elements of uh, duplicity, and stuff like that that I thought was um, interesting to delve into. And we did more of that, getting into the mythology stuff mm -hmm. in the show. I think uh, what all of you have done, um, and this is of particular interest to me right now, uh, is sort of looked at these familiar tropes, right? Horrors, e just in film, has been around for a hundred years. Um, and you asked yourselves either what is a turn on that familiar trope or how do I make that personal, which is, to me is a much more interesting question. And I'm curious to hear about how you made these horror stories personal. I'm curious to hear, as part of that, about writing what scares you. Yeah, I, I love what you were saying because there's, there's something really special about the horror genre where it's, there, there's such roller coaster rides, they're so fun to watch horror movies, but it's also always a great opportunity to either say something or make it personal to you. Um, in A Quiet Place, something Scott and I talked a lot about was how if there was no apocalypse with aliens you know, attacking and killing people, uh, our family would still have communication problems. They still wouldn't be talking to each other. And it was almost just as important to us when talking about the rules of the monsters um, was making sure that it, it almost worked as a metaphor of sorts so that it felt like something we could put our heart and soul into and, and, and really um, latch onto as, as writers. Yeah, and I think additionally, like we, like everybody here has been touched by some sort of family issue, whether it's a death or a divorce or some separation or estrangement. And that was something 
at the tip of our tongues, like that we were always talking about. Um, and beyond that, like I, I wasn't a father at the time, but my wife and I were, were very actively talking about what's it mean to be a parent? Like, should we be parents? And now I'm a parent now that Quiet Place has come out. And to be on the other side of that, um, that the film for me really touches a sensitive nerve in terms of you know how far will you go to protect your child and what does it feel like when you live with this constant fear of this you know kid dying at any you know any second and that's not even the world of quiet place that's just here in Austin Texas I'm trying to keep my 10 month old daughter alive and not get hit by one of the lime scooters that are scooting around here um, so it's it's always I think paramount to to imbue your 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 project with something that is cut from your own DNA because I don't think otherwise audiences will care. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, the thing about horror is horror is the purest genre we have. Uh, there is no purer genre than horror because in terms of every bit of filmmaking, um, you know, if you go to see a science fiction film, it's all about how great the special effects are or how big the, you know, uh, uh, how big and, and awesome it looks. When you go to a romantic comedy, it's about what stars are in it. When you go to a horror movie, you go to a horror movie not based on the cast, not based on anything else other than, hey, that looks like a good story. Um, that's what draws us in. If it looks scary, if it looks interesting, we watch that horror movie. And there's something incredibly pure about that. And so you get to really pour yourself into it. When we wrote Sinister, not only did we write from that core uh, that I talked about earlier of the kids aren't all right, uh, but me and Scott wrote the character of Ellison from the point of view of this is the guy we're afraid of becoming. The guy that is willing to sell out his family and sell out his own soul uh, in the pursuit of fame that that's the writer we're afraid of, that, that one day we might just be like, no, honey, I don't have time for you. Daddy has to write his book so he can get back in the, the big offices again. Um, that is, that's a very scary place to be because, you know, uh, you know, especially for me and Scott, our families are everything. I mean, as you were just saying, you know, this is, this is what scares us. And so we went from that very same place that we were, but being afraid of where, what we would become. And so we made that character become that and be the worst parts of what we saw in ourselves and our own fears, and then created this character that people just found fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think it's because it was honest. It came from an honest place. Um, yes, on, on the Exorcist, yeah. um, were you able, as a sort of mid-level writer, to tell a personal story in that show? Yes. A show that's not well, yours? Question um, mark. <laughs> well, um, Sean and Jeremy were just so amazing. I'll, I'll say this. Um, the show was about a group of foster kids and a foster family. And to me, um, the Exorcist writer's room became my foster family. Um, so in that way, I saw a little bit of myself in every character that was, mm-hmm. that was written. And that was, the, that was what was so amazing about being in that room. Um, like I said, Sean and Jeremy created this very safe environment where we were talking about um, all all of our personal experiences. As an immigrant, I, coming to America, I, um, I, it took me a while to recognize this as my home. Mm -hmm. And um, we had characters who, um, we had a character who um, came into the family later on, and in her, definitely, I, um, I saw myself. So, yes, the answer. That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, I'm curious about working on uh, other people's IP uh, along the same lines. You know, you guys are working on a Stephen King story. Um, are you able to tell a personal story through 
someone else's original story? You yeah. have to. You yeah, have to. absolutely. I think um, no matter what you're working on, even if you're working on um, you know the next Star Wars movie or something, like you have to find I'm a not. piece of yourself. <laughs> That's not the secret project you're no, working on. Okay. <laughs> Indiana None of Jones? us can confirm or deny anything. <laughs> but absolutely, like I don't. It takes too long to write a script to not let it be personal. Like, let's yeah. just put it that way. You like, have to invest so much in it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the only way that your characters um, can be people that your audience cares about. Because, um, you know, as, as Carl is saying, like, you can bring people into the theater on a concept, but you got to keep them there for two hours. And that's where the characters come in. Yeah. Well, I would, I, I mean, all great stories connect with the audience in a personal way. I mean, that's the thing is art is the core of art is you are transmitting ideas from your head to someone else and you're trying to find that common language that we share so that I can take my experiences and relate them to your experiences and you go, that's me, that's me up there. And so when you find IP um, that you relate to, you know, something you connect with, of course you're going to find those, you're going to find that personal stuff there that you put yourself into, that you put your character there. Um, uh, and, and it just, and sometimes you can't help it. It just comes out. Um, sometimes your characters just sound like you even at their worst. And, um, and that's the nature of writing. So, you know, you take that connection like you would with, you know, uh, a Stephen King story and everything that you relate to there and then you put yourself into it and then you come out with something you hope people enjoy. I want to thank Everlane for sponsoring today's podcast. Everlane makes high quality, ethical, non-expensive, like really reasonably priced clothing that you can order online and have delivered to your home, and it's cool stuff. They use the best materials, they don't have these huge markups that you get from other retailers. Uh, they tell you their real costs, and they work with ethical factories, and all that is on the website. They're very clear about it, they list who they work with, uh, and the prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers, because they sell directly to you. The clothes look better, cost less, last longer. I picked up some pants, and I'll tell you what, I got myself some uh, corduroys, because it's dropped below 60 degrees here in Los Angeles, so I needed something, you know, warm but comfortable, and uh, they are super comfortable, and even better, Everlane was really great about making a return, because I'm getting tremendously fat. Um, but they have all kinds of stuff, great, um, they sent, I got a backpack, which is amazing. It's really terrific. It's something I needed for all the travel I've been doing. Uh, some jeans to replace a pair of jeans that I had worn through uh, over the years. Uh, these are straight fit, or um, yeah, straight fit denims. Really comfortable. They have a nice Japanese Oxford shirt. Um, a lot of really great stuff. Timeless essentials, no frills, just quality. Right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash panel. That's E-V-E-R-L-A-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-E-L. Plus you get free shipping on your first order. Once again, everlane.com slash panel. Go to everlane.com slash panel. Uh, and get yourself some uh, nice new wardrobe. You deserve it. <coughs> 
I want to ask uh, a sort of uh, tangential question, which is definitely about writing and to me is the most horrific part of writing, and that is about being honest on the page and maybe putting the things you're afraid of or uh, the worst parts of you on the page. And tell me how each of you does that. How do you push through that and get that on the page? Uh, well, Al? you know, one of the things that occurs to me, and especially, you know, since this is the writers' conference and, you know, maybe good advice for writers too, especially newer writers starting out. I think that what you said is exactly true. We, we find the personal in what we're telling. And, and uh, younger writers or newer writers sometimes identify so closely with the characters that they're writing about that they end up protecting them in some way. Yeah. We end up sheltering them in some way. We don't push those characters through the worst possible gauntlet, through the worst crucibles that they can endure because we're protecting them, because they're us in some way. And so in part of that transmission of the personal, you also have to understand that, that the story is, suffers if it doesn't happen, if you don't make it as, uh, uh, not just personal, but as intense, mm -hmm. as, uh, as devastating as you possibly can. And recognize that that's, what, that's what's going to make that story stronger, it's going to make the journey stronger, the cathartic feeling that the audience endures going through that experience with your character. So the more that you can find that personal thing, find the thing that scares you, find the thing that, that is you at its core, and then let that thing be hurt. Mm -hmm. Let that thing be scared. Let that thing you know, breathe in that space that you've created and not protect it so much. I just wanted to ask like, everybody, frankly, like, what's your greatest fear and have you written about it yet? Uh, no, I, I think Ellison is my greatest fear. Yeah, I think, right. honestly, my, my greatest fear is becoming the person that I don't want to become. Right. You know, my, uh, I was raised Catholic, so I have all that Catholic guilt on me. And the whole, uh, which is also why I'm good at horror. Um, <laughs> let's be honest, it's a very scary religion. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm very afraid of becoming... <laughs> <laughs> Santos Dominus, <laughs> and you all know what movie I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean you. You get that. You, you know. Um, so I'm. I've been very trained from the womb to try to be the very best person I can. And the idea of becoming a terrible person chasing after a prize that isn't really all that worth it. Um, I, I just terrifies me, and that's I think why I, I so identified with Ellison and why we put Ellison on the page. I mean, the thing is, is as a writer, uh, you know, some, several of the greatest writers in history are some of the worst people in history. <laughs> we love writers because they're interesting, not because they're necessarily uh, good people or because we love everything about them. We don't, you know, it's not our favorite writers aren't Mr. Rogers, you know. Um, and so, if you're not being true, what the hell are we doing here? And you've got to kind of be real, you've got to be unafraid to put that on the page and let people judge you. And really, they're not going to judge you, they're going to think, oh, you came up with this great character and you're going to be, uh-huh, yeah, it's not me, not me at all, that's uh, okay. Uh, because that's just how it is. You, yeah. you, you let people go, oh, wow, Ellison Oswald is a terrible guy, he's horrible. And it's like, yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. Scott and I talk about that all the time is like, 
trying to to write something that's embarrassingly personal. And if like I'm not embarrassed by the pages I'm handing over to Scott <laughs> to look at, then I know I didn't do it right. Like it's not a good job. You know, we want to we want to we want to blush when we hand and it helps having already partner that you've grown up with and known forever. But um, but uh, you gotta you gotta spill your guts and, and look and look ugly sometimes. To, to tie into that, um, I. Everybody calls me Cargill. It's my last name. It's what I've gone by since I was 14 years old. And every few weeks, I'll meet somebody new who goes, oh, Cargill. Just Cargill? Yeah, just Cargill. Oh, what? Like Madonna? Like uh, Prince? And I told that story to Scott while we were writing on Doctor Strange, and he goes, that's Wong. That's our in with Wong. And so all the Beyonce stuff, you know, the oh, Beyonce, all comes from this stupid thing that people have done to me my whole life, which, you know, is embarrassing, but, you know, worked as a really great joke in a Marvel movie. (laughs) I would open that question to the rest of you. What are you afraid of? Have you gotten to tackle that in writing? Uh, For me, it's hurting the people I love around me. It's just, and it can be something as small as saying the wrong thing to something much more extreme, uh, as in the context of a current horror feature that I'm working, um, because we need some death in there, right? In order to like that, that's the that's the real fear we have, being responsible for some kind of physical, spiritual pain in someone else. Um, yeah. Yes. And you are getting to tackle that. Uh, is, it a, is it a difficult process, digging into this future? Oh, yeah, but I figured it out. I can't be happy when I'm writing it, which means I have to be in traffic on the 405 by myself. Sure. And, <laughs> and then it's just like it's gold, and I, I, I just pull out my laptop, park the car, and have at it. <laughs> uh, Al, what about you? Wow, um, this might be sharing too much, but I think nope. the, things that, the, the thing that used to scare me the most has changed. And the sharing too much part is this. Um, I, I was married for 16 years. I have three children. Several years ago, uh, I, got an anonymous, I started getting anonymous emails from someone who was threatening to out me as a gay man and saying, you're kidding yourself, you're, I'm sending this to your wife, I'm doing this I'm, you know, you're, to your children. I freaked the fuck out because I am gay, I'm out now, I'm divorced and all of that stuff. But at the time, that was the scariest thing to me. I didn't know who this person was, I had really no idea. But the idea that someone, and it's the oldest sort of blackmail trick in the book, right, of, of blackmailing guys like me who were raised Catholic, got married, had kids, knew they were gay since they were five. Yeah, this is a, this is a stock character, as you know. Um, but, you know, that was terrifying to me. I didn't know, you know, it, I, to me, I, I wanted to be honest about who I was, but I felt like being, doing that was inviting the apocalypse. I could not imagine a world in which I could do that. Yeah. So that terrified me for a long time. And, um, and I ended up doing like a Facebook purge of about half of the people that I were, was friends with. And then I got an email saying, oh, you, you unfriended me on Facebook. So I kind of huh. narrowed it down to <laughs> who this person might have been, but I still don't know for sure. But you know, that was a thing that just completely wrecked me for a long, long time. And it wasn't until a long time later that I was able to, you know, I guess, be honest about who I was step away from that fear and um, and so I think the thing that now scares me is what you said it's like have I hurt the people that I love am I hurting the people that I love by doing this other thing and mm-hmm. that's 
It's a, it's a topic that I've kept trying to challenge myself to address in writing in some way. Have you been able to? And I've been edging towards <laughs> that process. You know, right. I think that that's still a process. I mean, the weird thing about it, coming out in your 40s is very different from coming out in yeah. your teens or your 20s or even in your 30s. And so, to me, there's been like, the coming out process has been a years-long process. It's like every time I meet someone else in a weird way, I'm coming out to them. And, <laughs> uh, or I'm still sort of like, there are times when I wake up and I forget I'm gay. <laughs> Not really, but I feel it's like, there's right. just like this some weird thing where it's like, I lived another life for such a long time. Anyway, this is way sharing too much, but that's... No, that was thing. no, it's not. That was the thing. I'll give you my insurance card and you can swipe. <laughs> but that's the... Because this is therapeutic. But that was the thing that... Honestly, I could not imagine something that was more terrifying to me, which was exposure. Which was, you know, like this... Just being, being naked, really. I mean, being completely exposed and dealing with that kind of fear. By the way, this is the power of personal, honest storytelling, which is, I'm not a gay man in a, a long marriage, but I immediately identify with your story, and I'm like, oh, what would that be like yeah. going through that? It's amazing. You have to tell that story. It's, you do, yeah. It's, well, it's so fascinating. And I would love to see how you as a creative person process this into whatever genre story you tell. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, and I think you raise an, an interesting point, Brian, which is, as writers, we have to be empathetic, right? We have to live in the heads of all of our characters. Uh, and that means the not great ones, too. And Cargo, you, you touched on Ellison already, but I'm curious to hear from the rest of you about, like, tell me about the bad guys. Tell me about living with the characters who are scary or dangerous and finding sympathy for the devil. So much to process. I mean, the, the, here's the thing about horror. What I, what I think about when I hear that question, I don't know, this is probably an indirect response, but um, mm -hmm. horror, I feel like oftentimes... And, and I want to hear everybody's opinion on this, but I feel oftentimes it works better in the independent space, um, outside of the studio system, because if you're doing it right, you are touching a nerve that does not want to be touched. You are talking about things that you should not be talking about, that are taboo or dangerous, um, and that's where I love to live as, a, as an audience member. I, I love seeing those movies, but they're so hard to get made because of that, because, right. because it's scary. Respond. <laughs> Discuss. Well, I would just say, you know, it made me think about sympathy for the devil and, and just sort of like this. I think horror has a way also of, of forcing us to confront that character that we see as evil and sort of in whatever fucked up way see some kind of mirror to ourselves. You know, I, a very profound experience I had as an undergraduate here at the University of Texas at Austin was going to see, and I think I saw it three times at the Dobie Theater, the movie Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, when that first came out. Jeez. And why was I so attracted to this movie? I was attracted to this movie because it was a completely independent film. There was no studio involved. There was that element of it. It was a very raw kind of story. There was a sort of gallows humor in it, too. But there was something about Michael Rooker's performance uh, of Henry. And Henry, in the movie, is sort of based on... Uh, I think it's Henry Lee Lucas or whoever the, there was a Texas serial killer. Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah, Henry Lee Lucas. Um, and there was just something that I found, not that I identified with, but there was something that was profoundly moving about, about his character in that movie to me. I found there was that, that 
that the writer, I guess the writer-director John McNaughton had done in telling that story was that he found a way to show us really difficult material and yet there was something where I felt like I can't, I can't damn Henry. There's something about a hurt boy in somewhere in Henry's psyche, somewhere in Henry's past that I find some connection to. And I think that that's the power of cinema, it's the power of telling these kind of darker stories is that they, they force us in some way to empathize with the darkness in some way. And I think well, if you can understand a character too, like like that. you think about like Norman Bates or even like a recent example, Gone Girl, like right. like she's a sociopath, but you understand where she's coming from, and that makes her more complex and more scary, and you can put yourself in those shoes. As well. The best of these show us the humanity in these characters, even if they are monsters, yeah. right? And that's we respond as humans to them. But but great art, as he was saying, great art is dangerous, and horror was ghettoized for so long that it was allowed to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like it was, you know, studio execs. Sure. No one would, was looking. No one was looking. Studio execs would be like, you know, especially the greatest example is Paramount with Friday the 13th. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't even realize they had put out Friday the 13th yeah. and that it was such a big hit. The execs all hated the movie, but they're like, it made so much money, we have to make a second <laughs> one, but that's the last one. Okay, this third one is the last one. The fourth one, they're like, it's the final chapter. It's done. And then they're like, "Uh, we got to get rid of this. So they pawned it off on someone else, and someone else just kept making them. But great art really is, you know, horror is allowed to be dangerous, so it can say very true things. It can touch... Uh, it can touch us in places that we bury deep down, things we're afraid of, things where uh, uh, we find alluring that we don't want to uh, accept or talk about. Um, it allows to create very well-drawn characters mm-hmm. confronting metaphors for what they're really confronting. You know, uh, that was the thing. You know, for a long time, people hated Nightmare on Elm Street 2 because, oh, that's the gay one. And now it's the one that film critics are like, yeah, it's about a guy confronting his own homosexuality, but it was made in the 80s when that wasn't okay. And now you look at it as a film like, oh, there's a lot here, and there's a lot to unpack. And that's what great horror can do. It's funny to watch how all throughout, you know, for the last... 30 years, part two was always considered the worst Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and now a lot of film fans are like, no, dude, it's actually one of the smartest ones. Yeah, that's what I meant by smuggling. You know, I I think of the other example, and this goes back to also your sort of childhood kinder trauma kind of moment of the thing that drew you into horror. When I was a kid going to, I think I was in between seventh and eighth grade summer in San Antonio, and and, uh, I was at this sort of summer camp thing, this Catholic summer camp thing, where they showed us uh, on a Saturday night at like 10 o'clock at night, they set up a projector and showed us a 16 millimeter copy of Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) A bunch of like 11 and 12 year old boys are watching Night of the Living Dead for the first time. And as it should be watched. As it should be watched, (laughs) 16 millimeter with a bunch of priests. And I was, I was, uh, everything's falling into place, Al. All <laughs> right. Show me on the doll where the bad man touched you. Um, oh, oh! Now we've crossed the line. Uh, now killing kids is okay. Yeah. <laughs> Al's past. But it was it was it was really one of the most visceral experiences I'd ever had watching a movie. And I'd seen I guess I'd seen some scary movies before, but there was nothing that had prepared me for this. 
And to the point where I remember trembling, uh, you know, and just having this like scare, especially in the moment where, you know, the zombie daughter stabs her mother with a trowel in the throat. Um, but the other thing that, that also really affected me, and it goes to the idea of smuggling and sort of the, the hidden thing or not so hidden thing, and I think even George Romero would say, we weren't really thinking about that, <laughs> but it became that, is that you have a, an African-American hero uh, in this story who becomes the man of agency, who becomes mm -hmm. the guy who gets things done, the guy who these other characters have to follow. And the finale of that movie really prefigures Get Out. Oh, and that's, that he's actually said that. Like oh. he's, he's openly said that was the whole point of the movie. Jordan that was or? The, George or, Romero. Oh. That, that the racism was the whole point of, of... I had heard the opposite. I had heard that Romero had said, we weren't really thinking about that then. Well, he may have changed his maybe story. Changed. Yeah, that happens too. <laughs> Which is possible, yeah. but yeah, no, he said that in later years. Yeah, but, the, but there's this very... I mean, that, the final shot of that movie is so harrowing, and it's so, it's so much... Uh, a political statement in yeah. the middle of this, you know, throwaway zombie movie that's made yeah. in Pittsburgh for a couple of bucks. Yeah. But what is incredible that I'm just realizing, like, as you're talking about this, like, those were, like, Night of the Living Dead was a film made outside, you know, the system entirely, but now we have movies like Get Out that are being made within the confines of the system that are still digging into deeper things, and I think that's, that's one of the exciting things about the, the atmosphere that we're in right now is that there are people holding the purse strings that are willing to take a little more daring chances with certain filmmakers, and it's just creating, like, this incredible opportunity for, like, anybody that's a horror writer out there, like, as crazy as your idea is, just fucking write it. It's going to work. Like, just do it because there are so many people just taking those chances. Right well, now. that's that's Jason Blum's whole model. I mean, people don't actually talk about his model. Everybody thinks it's he just gives a little bit of money to a lot of people and scatter shots and sees what he can get. It's not what he's doing. The whole model is built upon the fact that he takes people who are somewhat established in the industry. He goes out and he's got people that figure out what their foreign pre-sales are. And with Scott Derrickson, when we made Sinister, it was $5 million. You could put Scott Derrickson's name on a 16-millimeter piece of shit, and it would pre-sale $5 million around the world. And so what he figured is, if you take a guy you can sell for $5 million and give him $3 million, you've already profited. <laughs> so, and that's the, that's the thing. Jason Blum's never lost a dime on a movie. You might be, oh, that movie went direct-to-video, or it got scuttled, or it bombed. Every single one of his movies has made money because of that model. But what that does is, in exchange for that model, in exchange for that little amount of money, he comes to you and says, as long as I like the pitch, you get to make whatever movie you want. Mm -hmm. And Scott had final cut on Sinister. Uh, so we got to make the movie we wanted to make. The studio that bought it came in and had some notes, and we liked their notes, and based on test screenings, ended up following just a handful of their notes. But that's how Jason Blum works, and how Get Out got made was, he said, Jordan Peele, I can pre-sell you for $15 million. here's $10 million, go and make whatever movie you want to make. And he was able to make Get out yep. and that's that's how it works is this new model is functionally allowing us to tell these very honest stories and if they don't work they don't work and they go to VOD and they can be found by the couple hundred people that dig it uh, but if not uh, if, if you get something like an insidious you get something like a get out you get something like a whiplash then you end up with something that really kind of touches a nerve and everybody connects with but I think the reason it touches a nerve the other element of the model is that the ones that work 
have an elemental quality to them, have a family quality to them, have a relationship quality mm -hmm. to them. They're not just hollow, you know, we're just doing it for, you know, the 60 million piece of shit, putting yeah. it out there. Well, they, they have to yeah. have that emotional. They are, as I said, about everything you guys have done. They're stories that the writers were passionate to tell, the directors were passionate to tell, and that shows on screen. Uh, I have two quick questions before we wrap up that I want to ask you guys. Um, and Alvaro, I'll start with you. Uh, let's talk about vampires. Uh, at a certain point, every one of you has had to show the monster, and that is a make or break time in a movie, uh, in a horror movie. Vampires are silly. Yes, they are. <laughs> How dare you? No, they're not. Vampires are ridiculous. They are dudes who got bit by other dudes. <laughs> And now want to bite you more. That, like, and, but some thing. of them sparkle, some of them don't. So here's my question. How do you make a scary vampire in a post-Twilight world? Wow. Right? Vampires have been defanged. But you made them scary. Well, I don't know that I really succeeded in that, but I, I, I appreciate the, the compliment. But I'm do, saying for all of us, you okay. made them scary. Well, what I, think, I do think that, that but that's the challenge, right? Um, one of my favorite, and this is maybe a movie that I don't know what its reputation is among the horror community, but one, I thought, really interesting example of how do you make vampires interesting and scary and not sparkle is an Abel Ferrara movie called The Addiction with mm -hmm. Lily Taylor. Fuck yeah. Yeah. That movie is a black and white movie. Abel Ferrara shot it. He was probably, uh, I won't say what he probably was when he did it, but the movie is super smart. The movie is, uh, it shows you the vampire very quickly. It and it has a very strong elemental quality, a very visceral quality to it, but it also has a really smart intellectual quality mm -hmm. to it. It's a lot about our addiction as, uh, as people to, to committing crime, to evil, to uh, this sort of like uh, sucking off each other's uh, life force or whatever. It, it, but it's, it's a very powerful movie. Lily Taylor's great in it. Christopher Walken has a great part in it that you just watch it and you just like, give me more Walken, give me more Walken. <laughs> but it's, that to me is like a really good example of someone who's taking the genre and doing a very personal thing in a very smart way, in a very visceral way. So I would recommend that if you haven't seen that. I didn't tell you all I was going to ask this, but I'm curious to know, uh, starting over with you, Brian, if you could have the keys to any horror franchise... Uh, what would you like to tackle? Oh, holy cr Ah, um, horror franchise. I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, could, could, we, um, could we go back and, like, is, like Hitchcock's work? Is that sure. a horror franchise? whatever you sure. want. Absolutely. Um, you know, but it's, it's sacred ground. It's so, it's so dangerous, That's right? That's why I asked. That's an uh, <laughs> awful question. This is horrible. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, uh, one, of, one of my favorite Hitchcock movies is uh, Dial M for Murder, mm -hmm. and... Um, it does not need to be remade. It's perfect. So, <laughs> so I just talked myself out of a job. I don't know. I don't, how, how do you? Wait, how this? would you even tackle that though? Because like, it kind of is perfect. I I just rewatched. I happened to rewatch it, and it really is just. It's perfect. It, it's There's nowhere gorgeous. to go with that. It's gorgeous. Here, here's what I would do. I would actually do Hitchcock's Rope, and okay. I would do it uh, all in one take. Sure. In a one as originally as intended. Um, but instead of a, a small dinner party with, uh, you know, eight or nine guests, I would do it in a massive ballroom like this with 200 people. <laughs> and the dead body is sitting in the middle of the room. And, um, and there you go. That's and, and it would not be nearly as good as the original rope. And right. I would be out you, of a career. But I just, kind of want to write that. Yeah, now. just write that. that. That's not rope. Write it. <laughs> it's great. Uh, Scott. Um, this is, I hate this question. This question is terrible. You are Why welcome. are you asking this? Um, I love it. 
So <laughs> Resident Evil and... Brian and I used to play this when we were 11 years old. And we've talked about this for years and years. We even talked to Screen Gems about it, but they're going in a different direction. Um, we want to do Resident Evil meets Gus Van Sant. And by that, I mean Gus Van Sant's... Um, like his death trilogy. Death trilogy, like uh, Last Days, Elephant, and Jerry, where it's just following your characters through atmospheric hallways. And so for us, the horror movies... And Resident Evil works when it's about suspense. It's not about zombies jumping out every single fucking second. It's not about Mia Jovovich like riding a motorcycle through a sheet playing plate glass of window. Like it's it's about you, waiting for You mean the for... Muppet movie? <laughs> the great Muppet Caper? Yes. <laughs> that's my choice by the way. The horror movie I'd remake. <laughs> so that's cool. That's what we would remake. I think we would turn Resident Evil into like a very lean, yeah. scary movie that's just built on suspense and not on, on zombies and, and blood and guts. That's, I love that idea. Yeah, the whole idea. Gus Van Sant, um, Alan Clark, elephant thing of doing an elephant yeah. version of Resident Evil is next level genius. You know, when you, when you mentioned the Hitchcock thing, the first movie I thought of was Marnie. Not that I, because I feel like there's... You could do a better one. There's a very Me Too version of Marnie yeah. to be done right now. Uh, Marnie is one of my sort of guilty pleasures and I think it's there's something about that movie that I think was maybe of its time but also very ahead of its time and feels very contemporary of issues of you know of uh, sexuality issues of like I said me too issues of psychology um, kind of the the exploration of the mind that we hadn't really seen in movies before and the way someone is helping someone kind of go through their trauma in a, in a way that illuminates their criminal behavior I think is very timely it's not really a horror franchise. Um, that counts. I'll take it. Okay. Yeah, I accept okay, your answer. Carl? Uh, the Purge, uh, without a doubt. Uh, no question at all. I've actually, I have the Purge movie I want to make. Uh, Lay it on us. I, can't, I will not. <laughs> the reason I won't is I may have pitched it to Jason Blum at some time, and he may have really enjoyed it. So I won't say, I don't know if anything's ever going to come from it. But the thing about The Purge, what's so great is, you know, the first movie is very much like a Twilight Zone episode. And that was what was kind of neat about it. It was like, it's this alternate reality where this really fucked up thing is happening. It's like the lottery. You know, it's very, it's very in that, that vein. And it sets up so many questions that every person in this room that's watched a Purge movie has thought about, well, what if this happened and started constructing their own Purge mm -hmm. movie? And it leaves a lot to talk about. It is a franchise that's entirely about the very worst parts of our nature. And it's, it's got such a great concept that's already set up. You have to explain nothing. I don't have to explain a villain. I don't ex have to explain what it is. It's 90 to 100 minutes of pure character and action. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and that is what every writer really wants. You know, the exposition is the hardest part. Like, how do I explain this thing? Like, I can only imagine how, in fact, one of the things that uh, I find you guys remarkable about what you guys did and what Krasinski did with Quiet Place is how quickly and easily you uh, gave us the information about the monsters and I know that it was so quick and easy that you guys spent three fucking months <laughs> painstakingly going over how do we explain this without just sitting and explaining it because they're not allowed to talk um, so it's and that's what I, I you know the purge is just such a very cool idea and it's got some really great entries in it and it's just a universe that I'd love to play in and spend a hundred minutes killing a lot of people while having something real to say about uh, our modern era of violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, th these are all good answers. Mine's better. I'm going to do a Hitchcock shared universe. You're welcome. <laughs> nice. Um, I want to wrap up by asking you what horror you have loved in the past few years. You have created some of the horror that we've loved, but what are those people who are making the stuff that we love, love? What are you inspired by? What are you talking about with your friends, your loved ones, your co-workers? Uh, and Cargo, let's start with you. Well, 2018 is the best year of horror of this decade, hands down. Um, there is so much good stuff out there, both in the mainstream, in the indie world, and all of my answers are going to come from this year. Um, right. uh, I did really love The Quiet Place. Uh, I love Suspiria, which is about to come mm -hmm. out. That movie is genius on so many levels that the audiences are probably going to hate it, and we're going to be talking about it for 30 years. <laughs> um, there's this great movie by RKSS called Summer of 84 that you guys can find on Shudder right now. And you get, it's, 10, it's almost 11 o'clock at night. If everyone in this room doesn't have Shudder, when you go home, go home. <laughs> and order Shutter. It's just horror movies that are curated by horror nerds. Yeah. Uh, Summer of 84 is great. It's, uh, uh, it's it, the way to describe it is it's Rear Window by way of Stranger Things. And it's fantastic. Also, another movie I love that's going to come to Shutter later this year is The Ranger, uh, which is this tongue-in-cheek film by Jen Wexler uh, that is very much about this girl who's gone into punk rock who has a kind of weird, dark history, and she goes back to her uncle's cabin, and The Ranger that was there at the time um, is psychotic and starts murdering her friends and uh, and it's so much fun and it's really good and these films I've watched each of these films a couple times already except Suspiria which I've only seen once which I will go out and see <laughs> in a theater after this weekend great Al Wow. TV um, counts too. I know, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more likely to have a movie answer. I'm trying to think of one that you haven't mentioned already. <laughs> and you know, I have a kind of a, a small C Catholic understanding of horror. My horror is, well, a cosmos, I you know, contain multitudes. So a lot of things fall under my horror umbrella. Mm -hmm. But to me, one of the most compelling films that I saw in the last year that I think on some level can be read as horror, even though you may not think so from just looking at it, is Paul Schrader's film, First Reformed. Mm -hmm. um, Ethan Hawke gives a very powerful performance of, uh, of a man of faith who is conflicted with a lot of things that he's seeing around him happen. There are some very grisly moments in the film, too. But I think that it, you know, it, it comes back again to identifying something that's rotting in your soul, something and trying to fight against the darkness that I think is, is at the core of horror and is at the core of Paul Schrader's film, First Reformed. Cool. Uh, in terms of film, I'm going to have to say A Quiet Place. Um, I went to see it alone in one of those really comfortable seats. Not the best, not the best way to see a horror <laughs> film, for sure. Um, but for TV, um, the last thing I saw, The Haunting of Hill House, really blew so me good. away. Um, just, just so good. In, in terms of the family drama, the... The scares, the, the horror, everything we talked about, about what, what scares us, it was in there for all the characters. The, the brilliant thing about that movie, that, or that show that I don't see a lot of people talking about is, is probably one of the best modern examples of diving into mental illness yeah. and grief that I've ever seen. For sure. But it, and it never, but it never feels like a bummer either. No. Like it's a, it's a fun show to watch for even though it's so dark and, and so quiet. Just to do a shout out to Castle Rock. Yeah. I thought Castle Rock did a great job of talking about mental illness, especially yeah. in the episode called The Queen that Sissy Spacek yeah. should get an Emmy for that performance. That is, uh, I mentioned this earlier in another panel, I thought that was like 
third brain, three-dimensional chess level writing in the way that that, that episode in particular was structured. And I thought they, that on the whole, even though I wasn't completely satisfied by the resolution of the first season, I felt that, the, that they did a great job of creating that world of Castle Rock and telling interesting stories that have a really cool creep factor, mm-hmm. but I really appreciated in particular that one episode. Um, certainly hereditary this year because that, that film is so brilliant in terms of how a family collapses and breaks down, and you could strip all of the horror out of that movie, and it would still be the most horrifying thing I've seen <laughs> yeah. in a long time. <laughs> and, um, and when she's yelling at the dinner table. Yes, that is absolutely. Horrific. Incredible, but horrific. And then um, Train to Busan, which is a couple years old, but um, what I absolutely adore about that movie is outside of it being like scary, it's also got such a heart to it yeah. that like you're almost crying by the end of the movie. Yeah, maybe I was crying by the end of the movie. <laughs> um, but those, those for me are the horror movies that I keep coming back to because they're, they're weighted in such, you know, yeah. character. So. Um, my favorite horror film of the year was Eighth Grade by uh, Bo <laughs> I found it to be terrifying and deeply personal, and um, I never want to be a 12-year-old girl again going through Eighth Grade. I experienced it so, um, so vividly. It was such an amazing movie. Yeah. Um, and, and, and another, I, I, I'm totally with you with about First Reformed, which is kind of another horror, non-horror horror film, but um, you know, I saw that movie in theaters, and the audience gasped at the end of that film. The people were hysterical. And I'm just like, does that still, it's like it was a reaffirming experience about the power of cinema, that people can still have those reactions when they go to a movie and um, it's it, beautiful. If I can throw in one more thing, there's a movie coming out in a few weeks called Overlord. Yeah. Um, that is <laughs> bonkers. It is bonkers in the best way. And the thing is, is it's a $40 million World War II zombie movie. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to do good. I don't know if you'll ever see anything like it again, but <laughs> It is, it, when you hear the words World War II uh, zombie movie, it delivers on all points. Uh, and it is exactly what wait. you want. There are Nazi zombies fighting GIs, and it is, bonkers is the best way to describe it. But it never stops being fun all the way to the cool. end. So that, that comes out in a few weeks, and I, I highly recommend uh, checking that out with some friends. <laughs> That's a good one. Please give a round of applause to all of our panelists. Give yourselves a round of applause for being here. Thank you all so much. Enjoy the rest of the fest. Thank you for listening to the Writers' Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers' Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers' Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. And now, as promised, here's an exclusive clip from The Angel of Vine. And just a quick word of warning, this clip does include graphic content.
Hollywood, California. Not just the home of glitz and glamour, no. Beneath the limousines and mink coats lurks a dark underbelly of crime, narcotics, and yes, even murder. The Angel of Vine, a murder straight from the pages of a dime store thriller, has captured the minds and fueled the nightmares of the nation and baffled law enforcement in Los Angeles. And how could it not? The life of Marlene Marie Evans, just 23 years old with a burgeoning film career, ended tragically on March 19, 1956, in an empty parking lot just north of Hollywood Boulevard. Her body mutilated, her life cut short, and her killer still at large. And with numerous false confessions, countless individuals questioned, and no viable suspects on the horizon, will the Angel of Vine be one Hollywood tale to go without a third act? Only time will tell. After my first interview with Beth and Phyllis, I reached out to a self-proclaimed expert in the case and asked him if he wouldn't mind meeting me at the scene where it all started. David? Yep. Hey. Hey, you, uh, you Oscar? Yeah. Yeah, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Yeah, thanks for meeting me here. Of course. Hey, welcome to Dead Hollywood Tours. (laughs) It's what I do, man. So, you want to know about Marlene Marie Evans, huh? Mm -hmm. The grisly unsolved murder of a young actress. The angel, as they call her. Well, they found her right over there. In in that parking lot? Yes, sir. Flayed and posed and angelic, staring at the heavens. You know what I find amazing is how many crazy theories people have about the murder. How many? What, can you tell me one? Sure. People love to latch onto the idea of a Southern California that they've heard about when it comes to cases like, I don't know, the Manson family or the Zodiac Killer. Everyone wants to attach a half-naked wacko cult or a hooded madman whose M.O. is always somehow satanic rituals. And, and you don't think that that was the case here? No, absolutely not. The likelihood that Marlene Marie Evans was a sacrifice to a secret society is as plausible as the idea that she was murdered by the FBI, the CIA, and the Mafia. Interesting. How can you be sure? Well, because. Because of the care and the attention paid to her body. The ribs made to look like wings and the use of her spine to create a halo. I mean, it's all too clean, man. Too theatrical. It's too much of a presentation. I mean, I certainly don't think the killer had Ernie Newburn in mind as the dude that was going to find her. I mean, <laughs> there's this laborer on his way to treat himself to some pancakes at Dupar's, and instead of staying on Yucca, which I would have done, takes the lot that cuts through from Ivar to Vine and finds himself an angel. No pancakes for Ernie that day. <laughs> I mean, a construction worker. She was found by a freaking construction worker who panics, grabs every other worker on the job to confirm that what he's found is, in fact, a dead girl, and by the time the cops show up, it's a zoo. I mean, if, if you're going to lay a body across from an active construction site uh, before dawn on a weekday, there's no question. She was absolutely meant to be found and seen by the public. I mean, once the press in this town got wind of the crime scene, they nearly destroyed any evidence in that lot trying to scoop each other. I mean, can you imagine trying to keep that lot safe from a mob of reporters? Uh, That's a ton of space to block off from vultures, let alone comb for evidence. With flashing bulbs going off and questions being yelled at that you don't have the answers to? It must have been absolute mayhem. Absolute mayhem. And Hollywood ate it up. I mean, not just Hollywood. Everyone ate it up. I'm still eating it up. I mean, have you heard those awful newsreels from back then? I have, yes, yeah. They're, they're pretty colorful. Colorful? They're grotesque. And, if you ask me, which you are, they only benefited the killer. The grandiosity of the drama on that scale of reporting just created more hysteria. 
Little known fact, where poor old Ernie found her in that parking lot, she was actually closer to Ivar. Marlene Marie Evans is actually the angel of Ivar. <laughs> but that's not as catchy, is it? So the reporters use Angel of Vine. Everybody knows Vine. Hollywood and Vine. Bang, instant headline. Everybody's hooked. My mother used to say all he cared about was that dead girl. Meeting the angel. It makes more sense now. So what else can you tell me about Hank? We know he was a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> what? My mother used to call him a professional peeping Tom. But yes, he was a cop for many years until he left the force. Do you know why? Something to do with politics within the department. They wanted to make an example of him, and so he left. After that, he opened his private detective agency, spends less and less time at home. My mother kicks him out. Gigi was a tough cookie. <laughs> Understandable. Can't say I blame her. I said just a second. It's a damn rush. I'm in here. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, how can I help you? Hank Breeze. That's what it says on the door. May I sit? Well, that's what it's there for. You come highly recommended, Mr. Briggs. Oh, yeah? Erwin was especially pleased with your discretion. <laughs> Erwin. You don't strike me as a Hollywood type. I'd like you to help me find someone. Now, you're going to have to be a little bit more specific. Mr. Briggs, I want you to help me find whoever killed Marlene Marie Evans. The Angel of Vine was a case with little to no information surrounding it. There were no prints, no clues, few suspects, and nothing connecting it to any other victims in any other cases. The investigation hit such a dead end that the entirety of the LAPD gave up after eight months. I want you to think about that for a second. The LAPD gave up any hope that they would catch Marlene Marie Evans' killer. And here we are. Decades later, with an entire attic filled with audio recordings of an ex-cop turned private detective who got closer than anyone to solving the murder and didn't tell us all. I want to know what made Hank Briggs the guy for the job. I want to know how he found a trail that no one else could. And more than anything, I want to know if he can tell the world who killed the Angel of Vine. <laughs> 